Hi, welcome back, Maya listeners. It's Megan here from Maya, my yoga audio. Time for your mind to be on the mat. And today, I'm launching a new series. Many of you might know that I wrote a book in 2019. Well, it was published in 2019 called The End of Me. And I've had several requests from people in the last year, and then specifically when the podcast started, to think about recording audio episodes of the book. And so I'm starting that today as a complement to the other offerings of yoga practice, interviews, and guided meditations that are happening on this podcast. So what I'll be doing is reading them in chapters of three. There's 10 chapters total in the book with a prologue and an epilogue. So I'll just bunch them together in, in books of three for your listening pleasure. And I hope you will enjoy. And an idea I wanted to present to you, it's actually a great one recommended by Chase Mitchell of Upstarter Podcasts, is see if you want to read along with me. So if you have the book in hand, just open up to the start of the chapter. And as I read, you read. It can be kind of like a duo experience. If you don't already have the book, you can navigate to the Maya website, myyogaaudio.com, and there's links everywhere there to purchase my book. If you order it from Amazon, it should get to you within two days. It's also available at Barnes & Noble. So give it a try. See what the reading experience is like for you and see what the audio experience is like for you. And maybe you do both of them together. The End of Me by Megan Morgan for Richard, Sandell, and Jesha, for always believing in me, even when I didn't, couldn't, or wouldn't, for loving me fiercely despite all the ups and downs. I love you, and I bow gratefully to each of you. Prologue. My mother, Rhea, died when I was seven months old. My father, Ronnie, died when I was four years old. The first time that I died, I was 19. A series of three death-defying experiences over the course of my adult life have gifted me, among other things, precious moments of time with my parents. These experiences have also helped me to gain new perspectives on what it means to live, what it means to die, and how this knowledge impacts not only me, but the lives of everyone I encounter. You would think that these experiences would make me live in fear of dying, but instead, because I experienced almost indescribable expansion, true exhalation, an absolute energetic integration all at the same time, there was no fear and there was no pain, and I don't live in fear of dying today. Each time I returned to my waking life with a directive that showed me how to reset my life's compass towards true north. And bit by bit, the pieces of my purpose started falling into place. I believe that a big part of that purpose is ultimately sharing these experiences with the world. The journey we will take together here will be unimaginable sometimes. From the details of my experiences in the initial chapters, to the lessons I learned in the middle chapters, to my thoughts on what I think it all means towards the end, we are in for quite a ride. In all of my death and back-to-life experiences, there were witnesses who can attest to what physically happened to my body. However, my greatest hope, dear reader and listener, 
is that from my words, you will not only get a glimpse, but a real and lasting feeling for how magnificent life is, was, can be, and always will be. Chapter 1. Mother. August 1993. Sarnia, Ontario, Canada. The first time I died, I was 19 and swimming in Lake Huron. It was summertime, and I was home with my grandparents on the break between my sophomore and junior year of college. I would be moving in with my boyfriend and two other roommates that fall. That boyfriend decided to come down from Toronto to visit me and meet my family. It was kind of a big deal. We had half seriously talked about getting married one day. He was all excited to get into the water, but it was a rough surf day on the lake. The sun was out, but it wasn't all that warm, and the waves were coming in fast and high in time with the strong winds. I'm a good swimmer, but I still didn't think it was a smart idea to go out in it. But I'd told him so many stories about swimming out to the sandbar that he was determined to go and tease me about being a chicken. I'm almost six feet tall, but he stood over six two and was more confident about striding into the water and ducking under each foaming wave. I kept up as best as I could, but I was falling farther and farther behind him. When I couldn't touch the ground anymore, I tried not to panic. That section where you can't touch the bottom anymore is brief. You only have to swim for a little bit before the little miracle of a sandbar emerges, and you practically stub your toe on it. But I wasn't finding it. The waves were all around me now, and I couldn't see my boyfriend's head bobbing ahead of me either. I looked side to side and finally back to shore. I was way over from where we had started. The waves had pushed me almost past the edge of my grandparents' property line. I decided it was too much. Something was off, and I resolved to go back to the shore. I treaded water around again to look once more for my boyfriend to try to call out to him and tell him what I was doing. But I didn't see him because a wave so big I couldn't see around it was about to crash over my head. It hit me like an avalanche, and for as much time as I've spent in the water and been tossed around, the power of the impact fully pounded through me. It actually felt like it went through my skin and head and exited out behind my heart and entire torso. My whole body hit the lake floor, and I felt the skin of my shoulders scrape against the little rocks, reeds, and debris at the bottom. Stunned and truly frightened, I tried to find my feet so that I could push and jump with all my might and make my way back up to the surface. It was so hard to find them. The force of the water still had my feet up above me, and I couldn't tell which way was up and which way was down. Finally, I found my feet and I opened my eyes and I looked up. I could see the sunlight coming in through the water, but just barely. It was so dark and cold down there, and I was terrified that I was so far down, and oh yeah, I'm not breathing. Since I couldn't take a breath to push up, I used the muscle strength I had, but it was meager. I was floating towards the surface, but not fast enough. My arms and legs were flailing, and I was wriggling with all my might. I just had to get enough power to go straight up, and it seemed like I was still so far away. My ears were ringing, and it felt like my chest would explode. It was infuriating, and if I could have screamed, I would have. I sensed, 
hoped that I was near the surface, but I couldn't even lift my head to look. I could feel that my legs were coming up from underneath me again. And then I felt another big wave coming. And as my body was pulled down further, still by the undertow, I tried again to get my head up and out of the water, but I started to feel detached from the completeness of my body. Another wave came. This time it smashed me head first right into one of the rusty metal barriers that lined the beaches in that area, ironically to help break the waves and protect from property erosion, and everything went black. I don't know how long I was like that, but the next thing I recall was that I could see light again. I was floating in the water, but I couldn't hear the waves or anything really, and I could see a far-off light that looked like the sun shining through the water. I thought I must be approaching the surface again, and I felt relief. I didn't feel the panic of my lost breath, and there was no pain in my body anymore from where I had hit my shoulder or banged my head, just an amoebic-like experience of lifting and floating towards the surface. But then within that circle of light, I started to see things. People, a building or two, a garden. The people were laughing and happy, and the garden surrounding them was fertile. The sun was shining. Glasses, plates, and cutlery were tinkling. Everyone was having a wonderful time, it seemed. Everyone was wearing white or very light-colored clothing. They looked like movie stars enjoying the views and the Mediterranean weather of Santorini, Greece. I started to recognize some of the people. My Aunt Carolyn my great-grandfather Charles, my great-grandmother Flavia. Wait, 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 wait a minute. These people are dead. A shockwave rose through me as I felt myself lurch forward, being propelled towards it all. And I reached with my right hand towards that circle of light in the direction of these people that I loved who were waiting there, it seemed, just for me. Suddenly, to my right, my mother appeared. I do not remember her in actuality. I was so young when she was killed in a horrendous accident resulting from brake failure and someone else driving under the influence. I grew up in a home filled with her pictures, stories of her beautiful kindness and smile, and a sense that I have never longed for something or someone so much as her. I eagerly floated towards her, relieved to recognize her and be with her at last. She had on a long, baby blue dress, and ribbons were wound in her hair, floating out and around her head. She was so beautiful. She had a sound to her that I cannot fully describe, but it was like being in the center of a perfectly pitched musical note. She reached for me, not to embrace me or welcome me, but to hold me back. Stagnant in the tunnel, I pushed against her, I tried to pull my way through, but she was firm. It's not your time, Megan, she said. You have so much to do, children to have, work to do, so much to be. Not yet. Now I could feel myself dying inside, but it was because I was crushed by her powerful presence and seeming rejection. I couldn't hear or make sense of her message as it felt as if my heart was exploding. I cried out, screamed, yelled, begged, pleaded. I just wanted to be with her, 
to feel that warmth of her presence, to be in the wave of that singular musical note. One more time. But the answer was not to be what I had hoped. We argued. It was painful. But her voice was firm and feminine and powerful. Not yet. And then I was floating back and away from her, and the magnetic pull was reversing, and there was nothing I could do about it. I could feel the enveloping warmth of the garden and all that goodness slipping away. Seconds later, I was zooming through a vortex-like whooshing sound. It was roaring in experience. And then I was back in Lake Huron being lifted from the water by my boyfriend. On the beach, he worked furiously to get the water from my lungs. But I saw all this happen from outside and just beside and above my actual body, feeling like a doppelganger keeping an eye on the other person. It was the strangest sensation, like I was spying on myself. And then when the water came out of my lungs, I felt myself plummet back into my body. I couldn't make sense of what I was experiencing. My throat was raw. The top of my head was pounding. It hurt to take in air, and I couldn't stop coughing. The memory of my mother in that place that was so fresh and soft and comforting clashed with the gritty reality of the sand and the cold air and so much bodily pain everywhere. Through all of this, my boyfriend was livid, angry with me. How had I let this happen? Why didn't I stay closer to him? Wasn't I supposed to be such a good swimmer? I couldn't speak for a while, and so I didn't. It hurt to breathe. It hurt to blink. Everything was so bright. It hurt to be back here on Earth, and I couldn't focus on anything. I couldn't stop crying or retching. I wanted to talk to my grandparents who had raised me and tell them about what I had seen, but I was really scared. Part of me was still lingering in that soft place, and that part was resisting and fighting with the parts of me that were back on the windy beach. I was having an incredibly hard time staying in my body, and I didn't really want to. I had never felt more confused. When I could talk and tried to talk about all of this to my boyfriend, he would have none of it. He didn't even want to hear about it. It was all nonsense, and I was just irresponsible, not making sense and being silly. He insisted we not speak of it at all, ever again, period. What should have been a moment of warning for me about his temper and controlling behavior did not sink in until the coming winter. There had been other signs too, like when we were first dating. He called 17 times in one afternoon and filled up my roommate's answering machine wondering where I was. But I had thought this was romantic at the time. I was only 18 and had been so flattered. So I put the incident behind me, told no one, and when that boyfriend asked me to marry him a short while later, I foolishly said yes, thinking that somehow this incident had brought us closer together. February 1993, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. My boyfriend and I were back at school, living together in an apartment with our two other roommates. On one of the coldest, snowiest nights, I decided to go out dancing with some girlfriends. My boyfriend always disapproved of this activity unless he was invited, so as usual there was tension while I prepared to leave. It began to annoy me that I had a curfew. This is true. He expected me to actually call and check in with him. 
this was before the time of everyone having cell phones in the 90s. So checking in was not actually an easy task. He also wanted me to not talk to certain friends whom he didn't approve of. But I left that night with no intention of following any of the rules. He was starting to feel like an authority figure instead of my boyfriend. I had just turned 20 and needed some freedom, not this. I was regretting my decision to be engaged and told myself since I had no ring anyway, so this wasn't really real. And while hanging out with my friends that night, we chatted about our lives, and I realized I was done. Done with him. Done with pretending that everything was okay. I decided that I was too young to settle for this kind of relationship, and it was time to move on. My friends agreed, and one by one they started sharing with me their true feelings about him and me, saying that they were shocked we were still together because he didn't seem to be the right person for me. One alarming example they recalled was when I had thrown him a surprise birthday party about a year earlier. He had told me in jest, I thought, that he did not want a party. But he was very sociable and loved being the center of attention, and so I colluded with his classmates to arrange it. Shortly after, we arrived home to the party, and everyone jumped out from behind the couches and the rooms in the apartment, and all was revealed. He turned to me and playfully, in quotes, wrapped his hands around my neck and shook me. It was uncomfortable, to say the least, and in full view of everyone at the party. While he did not actually squeeze tight enough to choke me, the pressure was enough to know that he was displeased and I would hear more about it later. So back to that snowy evening, I had a blast dancing and being with my friends. I didn't call to check in. I talked to everyone and I didn't care what time it was. When the club closed, the combination of a citywide taxi strike and a wicked snowstorm presented a problem getting home. A male friend who had a car and lived a short distance away offered to drive my friends and I home but we all lived in different places, and with the weather disaster, it was well after 3 a.m. when I got back to the apartment. He was up, waiting for me with his hands on his hips, absolutely fuming mad. Part of me got it. Maybe he was worried, understandable with the weather, but I knew in that moment it wasn't that. He just wanted me to do what he said, period. He pushed me down on the living room couch, and with his long index finger in my face, began hissing out his rage. I could feel his saliva spraying my skin. Somehow, I detached myself from my body again and could see from outside myself what was happening. I'd had a fair amount to drink, I'll be honest, but I sobered up in an instant and just left my body. He accused me of sleeping around, asking me over and over again who I'd been with, who I'd been fucking. And so I just laid there, silent and steady. My own rage was building. He pinned me down flat on the couch. He pressed the top of my chest down with his left palm and began punching the sides of the couch on either side of my head with his right hand. I could feel the air move each time his fist came down. I had my eyes squeezed shut, but when I opened them and looked right at him, I said, are you going to hit me or not? At his size and strength, there was no way I could get out of it, so I just wanted to know. He yanked me up on my feet and slapped me hard on the face towards the left and then the right. Dazed, confused, and stunned, I started to fall, but he grabbed me by the shoulders and shook me so hard I could feel my head bobbing around my shoulders. 
My teeth were clattering together, and I got scared, and somehow I prepared myself to run. As I started to wrench away from him, I turned to the hallway and run towards the bedrooms. If I could get into the bathroom, it had a lock on it. Of course, he caught up with me and grabbed hold of my left wrist with one hand and my throat with the other. And I got still, really, really still. His hand on my wrist was squeezing so tight it felt like it might actually break. The hand on my throat was scary too, but not as firm or as strong. I knew he'd need both hands to hurt me more, and so I said, in the firmest voice possible, let go of me. He smiled and gripped harder. I winced, but I said it louder, let go of me. When he increased the pressure again, that ringing came back into my ears, and I knew this was it. There were three other people in that apartment at that time, and they needed to help me. So I screamed as loud as I possibly could, let go of me. And I didn't say it just here, but it could quite possibly have woken the dead at that time. Within a moment, one of my roommates was in the room telling my boyfriend to release me. He still refused. I kept screaming. Eventually, my other roommate's boyfriend, who happened to be staying over that night, came in too. And somehow both of them got him off me and insisted he get out of the apartment. I sobbed in my room, petrified that he would come back. Within the next few weeks, he moved in with another friend, and he slept on the couch a few nights in the meantime. His mother called me, pleading with me to give him another chance, insisting he didn't mean it. His temper just got the better of him, and he was a good person. But I was hardened inside to him, and there was no room for reconsideration. Absolutely not. No. My mother was right. I had work to do, and he would have no other chances in my life. Chapter 2. Father. October, the year 2000, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. The second time I died, I was 25 years old and had just given birth to my second daughter, Jesha. I'd had a rapid labor and delivery, from the onset of intense contractions to transition and pushing, the amount of time it took for her to be born was about an hour and a half. We had a room reserved at the hospital, but there was no time to get there. We called our doula, Kimberly, when things got intense, but it was just after 4.30 p.m., and she was coming to us through rush hour traffic. She advised us to get into the bath and try to relax until she could arrive. When she did arrive, close to 6 p.m., she could see Jesha's head crowning and told me to start pushing as the urge arose. She could call an ambulance, but she was honest in saying that she didn't think they would make it in time. I was okay with that. I had actually wanted a home birth all along. Jesha was born just a few minutes after 6 p.m., but the cord was wrapped around her neck, and there were some careful adjustments that Kimberly needed to do to unwind the cord and allow her to descend safely. Birth is never an easy process, but I had no idea how much more intense it was about to become. The sun was setting to the west over the Rocky Mountains of Canmore and Banff, and I looked out my bedroom window at them as she came into the world. We had moved to Calgary about two years earlier for a job promotion I had received, and I was elated to be in a town where my closest cousins lived and to be in such proximity to the mountains. 
The winters could be brutal and snowy, but in October, it's still pretty mild. It had been a lovely fall day, and the golden sun setting over the mountain peaks made me feel so incredibly grateful and at peace, living in a place where I could witness such stunning beauty every day. Shortly after she was born and determined to be in ideal health, it was time to get me into the shower and prepare for the afterbirth arrival. My first daughter, Sandel, had been born in the hospital, and the circumstances had been radically different. And while I doubt that anyone feels particularly physically great after giving birth, I have to say that I felt quite bad in that moment, totally different than after I'd had Sandel three years earlier. I attributed it to the fact that I'd had no surgical or anesthetic intervention this time. With Sandel, I'd had an epidural and an episiotomy, so I thought this sinking, breathless feeling I was having was the result of a totally natural childbirth. My husband, Richard, who I'd met and become friends with while I was struggling with my other boyfriend, was now my rock, my hero, my lover, and my very best friend. It is amazing how the disaster of one situation can wholeheartedly catapult you into the glory of something so beautiful and fulfilling. He had been nervous about giving birth at home and was against the idea, which is why we had reserved the hospital room. He was now working hard with Kimberly and my friend Jeanette, who had also attended many births and was an experienced caregiver. She came over right afterwards to get me settled into bed right away. The afterbirth experience in the hospital with our previous daughter was something that was done to me. Anesthetized and spent, I recall my doctor at the time telling me to push as hard as I could while she pulled it out. It was a mild sensation. This time, Jeanette, and Jeanette was actually my doctor, but it was against the law for her to attend a home birth. However, she came afterwards and did this part. So she was telling me to push without her pulling, and I couldn't do it. I was freezing, shaking, and bleeding like crazy. I had given birth on the floor of our bedroom on a shower curtain, and at the very last moment, my foot slipped and inadvertently kicked the shower curtain out from underneath me just as Jesha was coming out. She and everything else inside me ended up on our snow-white carpet. I was continuing to bleed profusely, but the carpet was the last thing on my mind. To help me relax, Jeanette ran the shower for me and helped me to get in and try to warm up. But no matter how hot she said it, I couldn't get warm and continued to bleed a lot. The bathroom was full of steam and the water was as hot as it could get without scalding me. I couldn't even stand. I had to sit in the bath and just let the shower wash over me. We tried again to move the afterbirth, but I couldn't push. I couldn't breathe. It felt like my chest was caving in. My head was becoming detached from my body, and my heart was pounding in my ears. I looked at her. I told her something is wrong. I could feel myself getting lightheaded, breathless, panicked. I just wanted to lie down with a big snuggly blanket in that small bathtub that my six-foot frame could barely fit into. Jeanette took a hold of and held my chin in her hands and tried to lock eyes with me. But I couldn't focus. I did hear her tell me that it was really important that I push, that it had to come out or I would continue to feel worse and that this could become a life or death situation. So she helped me by pulling a bit and somehow I pushed. 
And when it came out, it was like giving birth all over again. And I still bled more. I was scared and so, so cold. I still couldn't stand to move out of the bathroom and back into my bedroom. So my husband and Kimberly, who are both pretty tall, put one of my arms around each of their shoulders and held me up, instructing me to take one step and then another towards the bedroom directly adjacent to the ensuite bathroom. At first, I couldn't feel my feet, then my legs, and when I tried to speak, everything went black. When I opened my eyes, I was on a stretcher in a hospital hallway, doctors and nurses running everywhere. Of course, I thought I ended up at the hospital anyway, but I was sort of relieved because I didn't feel so bad anymore. I looked to my left, and suddenly my father was standing there. You know, the man whom I hadn't seen alive since I was four. July 1978, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. He'd had a massive heart attack at the Toronto airport, and when help arrived, he was already gone. Witnesses say that he stumbled, appeared to clutch at his chest and heart area, and then he fell to the ground, unresponsive. I didn't live with him after my mother died. My mother's mother, Madeline, had taken me in to live temporarily with her and my mother's stepdad, Chester, until my own dad could get himself together. The trauma of my mother's death had affected him so greatly that he was unable to work. He moved in with his brother, and he generally detached himself from the world. Unable to parent and barely able to look after himself, he consented to let them temporarily have custody of me until he could figure things out. Well, he never quite got things in order, but he did come and visit me at my grandparents' house usually about twice a year, at Christmas and during summer vacation. I really didn't understand who he was when I was growing up, and my first memory of seeing him when he came to visit one Christmas was thinking that he looked like the comedian Richard Pryor or JJ from the TV show Good Times. I remember my grandmother telling me to say hello to your father. I didn't understand what she was talking about, and I was scared. My father, and who I called dad, was my grandfather Chester. I don't recall this part, but I am told that I called my biological dad Uncle Daddy because I apparently theorized if you visited twice a year, you earned the name Uncle before the name Daddy. Ronnie was tall and skinny, smoked a lot of cigarettes, and had a big round afro and facial hair. When he walked down the street, people stared. Could it be because he was so tall, good-looking, and fashionable? Maybe, but he was also the only black man most people had ever seen around a mostly white Catholic town, so I'm pretty sure that had something to do with it, too. I can recall us walking to the park or the beach when he visited and getting stares. My mom was white and had been born in Belgium before immigrating to Canada. People are never totally sure what to make of me, but his over six foot frame, thick mustache, brown skin, and afro made him undeniably black and stare worthy in the late 1970s. Ronnie did not pay very much attention to me, and I don't say that to blame him. I understood, even at a very young age, that he was a shell of a man. He walked, talked, smoked, ate, and drank. He roamed the halls of the house at night because he couldn't sleep. 
He never looked me in the eye and certainly did not want to play games or cuddle. Even when we walked down the street together, he did not want to hold my hand. He would tell me I was a big girl and to stay close by him and walk on my own. It frustrated me that he didn't work the way regular parents were supposed to work. On the beach, he would stare at the waves and smoke. If I sat down beside him, he did the same thing. If I rolled around in the sand, did jumping jacks, shouted at the top of my lungs, or even got dirty, he did the same thing. It felt like I didn't exist in front of him. He was just not there. I can't even remember his voice because he spoke so little. Calgary, Alberta, Canada, October of the year 2000. So you can imagine that when he appeared beside my hospital bed in the year 2000, I was quite stunned. He was still dressed like a 1970s sitcom character, brown leather jacket, beige rib turtleneck, and brown corduroy pants. The afro was a little smaller, but it was him. I tried to reach for him, calling out, Dad! I was so excited. It didn't occur to me just yet how all this was happening. It felt incredibly real. He actually looked at me, locked eyes with me, and I could see the concern in his eyes. This is the only time I can recall him looking right at me. I tried to talk to him to tell him he had another granddaughter and what her name was, but he stopped me mid-sentence and said, You're not supposed to be here, Megan. Just stay right here and I'll be right back. He ran off down the hallway while my rage built up again. Here we were, more than 20 years later, and he still wouldn't talk to me? It was beyond my comprehension. I couldn't get up anyway. Yes, I tried. And in a minute or two, he came running back with people dressed in full medical gear. He was panicked and looked kind of angry. He was gesturing frantically for them to get to me, and I just wanted to talk to him and connect with him. I couldn't see the faces of the staff. They were all scrubbed up and wearing surgical masks, and they began hovering over me, and I could feel their hands on me, pushing, prodding, and I was trying to fight them off so I could talk to my dad. The next thing I knew, I was back in my bedroom at home in Calgary. Hovering above the bed, I saw them working on me, trying to get my body to function again. The actions and what I was seeing and feeling made no sense at all. I could feel the immense tension in the room, even panic. Finally, I opened my eyes to a blow. Richard was slapping me lightly across the face, back and forth, back and forth. Kimberly was doing chest compressions. I wasn't quite back in my body yet, and I was watching this rather than feeling it. I could sort of feel the pressure from Kimberly's palms pumping at my chest and feel my chin going side to side. I could see Richard's beautiful brown face had turned a shade of green I didn't think was possible. Kimberly was sweating and panting and kind of yelling as she counted. When I opened my eyes fully and tried to take a breath, I couldn't. It felt like when I was underwater again and 19 and trying to find air and fight my way to the surface. A final slap from Richard prompted a sharp intake of air that got me breathing again. It was so painful. It felt like I was inhaling and swallowing glass. Kimberly was shaking and commanded that I needed to go to the hospital right away. I was bleeding heavily and my heart had stopped. 
I was insistent that I wasn't going anywhere. And now that I was back in my bed and my baby was born, all I wanted was to rest and be still. Kimberly honored my wishes, but said, if my bleeding did not decrease within 90 minutes of taking homeopathic Arnica supplements every 15 minutes, she would insist on calling an ambulance and having me brought to the hospital regardless of what I wanted. Somehow, in that time period, the bleeding slowed and I sank back into my own body once again. This time was different. I'd had two experiences now in which I'd definitively died, once seeing my mother and the other seeing my father. What did this all mean? Obviously, we all have a purpose here, and now I was a mother twice over and a wife. We had a lovely home, careers, extended family, friends we adored. What was I supposed to be doing differently? The first experience I attributed to a literal shakeup that needed to happen between myself and my then boyfriend. But now, I would have said I was pretty happy, balanced, on the right path, but I guess I was wrong. My father hadn't actually said why it wasn't yet time to go, frustratingly leaving me as usual on my own to figure it out. My mother had told me the reasons why, even if I had disagreed with her in that moment out of emotional angst. But my father hadn't said a whole lot other than it wasn't right and it wasn't my time yet. So what now? Chapter 3, Family. January 2004, Cambridge, Ontario, Canada. The third time I died was the day after I turned 29 and I was driving in a wicked snowstorm to work. We had moved back to southern Ontario for a job opportunity for Richard in 2002. The Cambridge area of Ontario where we had moved is part of a severe snow belt, and this day was one for the record books. With near zero visibility because of the falling snow and cold temperatures that rapidly create patches of black ice on roadways, it was a malicious concoction to drive in. Richard and I had both quite a commute to get to our jobs, and our girls were involved in a complicated mix of daycare, babysitting, and Sandel being in kindergarten for half the day. I had started a new job the month before, and although my commute was a bit shorter than my previous job, it was still about 45 minutes on a good day. On this morning, the snow was coming down, but good. I was managing a small home and accessories gift store and had to get to work to open the doors and get set for the day. As I traveled down the on-ramp to get to the highway, going less than 30 kilometers per hour, I pressed my foot on the clutch of my four-wheel drive Subaru Forester to gently ease into third gear and prepare to merge into the slow-moving and sparse highway traffic. I felt a momentary lurch in the car, and then another lurch in my stomach as I sensed what was about to happen. The car had hit a patch of ice, and as it started to swing to the side, totally out of control, it was that exact feeling you get when you go on the tilt-a-whirl ride at the county fair, except it didn't stop. The car swung one way and then another. I couldn't tell which way I was facing anymore, and as the car began to spin in full circles, I prayed that I wouldn't hit anyone because there was nothing I could do. 
When the car stopped spinning, I looked up and around and all I could see was white. I felt a surge of relief. Oh, I must be on the shoulder, off to the side. Just then, the grill of a double tanker truck hauling thousands of gallons of milk rammed right into the passenger side of my car. The sight of that looming grill, probably two or three times taller than my car, is something that I've never really been able to shake from my memory. The scale and immensity of what was happening had me realize, absorb, and accept immediately that this was it. I was not going to survive this. Everything moved in slow motion after that. The sound of crushing metal, bursting glass. Although heavy snowfall makes quiet sounds, there was nothing that could mute the collision of metal on metal. I could hear the roar in my ears, and I immediately left my body and zoomed up into the atmosphere. I watched from above, and yet I could still feel my body being thrown about in the car, even with my seatbelt on. It sort of felt like it was happening in a padded room. I didn't feel the pain of the impacts in those moments. It was almost comical. Meanwhile, the car had flipped over twice and only stopped because it hit a concrete shoulder barrier at the side of the road, without which my car in all likelihood would have continued to roll on down the hill that was right behind it. My consciousness completely floated up and over the car, and I could see through the blizzard snow all around me. I wasn't cold, and I felt elated and ecstatic and kind of like I was a piece of snow even as I was looking at the millions of other snowflakes. There was no sound, just a blanket of softness all around me, a sparkling feeling, a good feeling. Everything is perfect and wonderful and okay feeling. I wasn't confused. I didn't feel pain. I wasn't being thrown about anymore. I wondered how I ever thought that snow was even cold. It was beautiful and warm like a soft blanket. What happened next was a film reel of my life. Every single happy, joyful, glorious, emotion-filled moment of my life swirled around me. My wedding, my children, swimming, believe it or not, dancing, being held by my parents as a baby, feeling the sunshine on my skin, lying down in the grass watching Sandell run into her classroom wearing her purple puffy coat and turning to wave at me and smile one more time. The smell of Jesha all soft and warm and cuddly when I picked her up from her crib. Richard and I laughing. Riding my banana seat bike with streamers on the handlebars with my good friends. Getting ice cream on a Friday night and feeling the tightness of a sunburn on my nose and cheeks from a day spent at play. It was literally all the good memories of my nearly 30 years compressed into a home movie reel that kept playing on a loop where more and more and more of the joy kept being revealed in new and wonderful ways. I felt light. I was ready. I was going home. Except I was not. Of course I was not. I started to hear the sound of a man crying, and I could feel myself being pulled downwards. I surmised that I was now at my funeral and someone, perhaps Richard, was racked with grief and I was trying to figure out how to bring comfort and reassurance from the beyond that it was going to be okay. And I ached for my girls too, 
and thought about how losing their mother at such a tender age would affect them. I recalled my own mother's passing and wondered if it was our fate to keep losing our mothers so young, time after time. And then I was cold again. Wait, wait a minute. If I'm cold, I can't be in that space anymore where you don't feel pain, discomfort, and separation. The sobbing grew louder. I got colder. I blinked my eyes open to see that I was still seated in my car. All the windows were smashed in and there was snow and glass everywhere, all over me, all over the inside of the car. My entire right side was numb and my head hurt horribly. Holy shit, it was cold. But who is doing that crying, which I can still hear? I looked out the front of my car and to the right, I saw a man bent over beside the car, one hand on the crumpled hood, and he was sobbing and apologizing and praying and saying, oh God, over and over and over again. I tried to move, but I was buckled in and my seat was jammed up against the door. I want to help him. He thinks I'm dead and wonder of wonders I'm actually not. I could hardly believe it myself. I managed to call out something. I think I just said hello or hey, and he stood up slowly to peer into the car at me. You're alive, he screeched, and began again with the oh my god and full throttle panic. He ran back to his truck and then back to my car and explained that he had already called the police and they were on their way. Other people on the highway began to pull over and stepped out to help. They offered blankets, their very own coffee or tea or whatever they were sipping on and all sorts of comforts. And I will be forever grateful for the grandest and kindest of humanity that was shown to me that day. More than half an hour had passed, and due to the weather, numerous other accidents and blockages had since occurred, but still the police had not arrived. I felt okay, not perfect, but okay. I wanted to get out of my car, which had no protection from the snow and wind and cold anymore and get into the car of someone who had stopped and offered to help. It was well below zero, and I was going into shock. One woman who had stopped had a cell phone and asked if I wanted to call anyone. I wanted to call my husband, which I did, and I don't remember what I even said because I just got his work voicemail. He later told me that I just screamed and cried into the phone, and he couldn't tell if I was actually dying or not but that he saved it for six months afterward and listened to it every day as a reminder that I was still alive and had come back to him again. The truck driver and the woman who stopped argued over whether or not I should get out of my crumpled car. He thought I should stay put and wait for the paramedics, whereas she could see that I was able to move and needed to get out of the cold. We were pushing on 45 minutes in sub-zero weather. I crawled out of my driver's side window and limped to her car where she had a warm, woolly emergency blanket and hot tea to share. I remember her talking to me, but I don't know what she said. I just shook and sipped. And even though she had her heat blasting on high, I was still cold. The fire department arrived first and they asked me why I had gotten out of the car and where my children were. My children? My children? What do you mean, my children? 
The firefighters said that there was a crushed and twisted car seat in the back. Where was the child that would sit in it? And I couldn't remember. It is impossible to explain to you the absolute terror that went through me. I thought my insides might actually drop out of me right in that moment. He saw the look on my face and all hell broke loose. Every firefighter jumped down from that truck and began combing the roadside, scrambling down the hill behind the shoulder barrier, digging through the snow. I was trying to stay conscious, and I closed my eyes and tried to breathe. Then I remembered. I had dropped Sandel at kindergarten that morning and Jesh at the babysitters. I ran back out to them, and the frantic search for my babies ended while I bawled. When the paramedics showed up, they immediately told me I probably had a head injury because I had been unable to recall where my children were, so they started taking a closer look at me. They asked me what day of the week it was and when my birthday was, and funny enough, I could remember that my birthday had been the day before and that I had turned 29, but I couldn't remember the actual date or day of the week, but I was adamant that I was not going to the hospital. It's almost impossible to explain why I so strongly refused to go to the hospital. Richard thinks it's because I thought I might die at the hospital, as my mother had, but my rationale was, heck, this is the third time I've been through this, and I'm alive, so what would be the point of that? In my mind, I was not going, and that was that. Besides, I could hear the police scanner reporting accident after accident after accident, and I was sure I would be okay. Not everyone who got into an accident that day would be. The paramedics disagreed with me, but they couldn't force me to go, so they had me sign a waiver and then had the tow truck driver bring me home, which was less than five minutes away from the scene of the accident. Once home, I watched the bruising increase and spread up on my leg, arm, ribs, all along the right side of my body. I shook and I cried and I wondered about Richard the girls, my work, but I just wanted to be warm and safe again. I fell asleep and about two hours later awoke to the sound of a loud motor. We lived in a cul-de-sac at the time and so I limped towards the front door and saw a tow truck with Richard's car sitting on it and Richard limping towards me. What in the actual holy hell? My husband and I made the local news that evening as Emergency services realized that as soon as they cleared my accident, that my husband, racing home to figure out what had happened to me, spun out in his car in the exact same intersection. He hit the highway median, crushed the front of his car, and had his dashboard collapse on his legs. He, too, refused medical treatment because he was so anxious to get home to see me. And when he came in, we stood in the front hallway of our home and bawled together. When we called the insurance company, they started an investigation into a domestic violence incident because they initially thought that we had somehow purposely tried to ram into each other on the highway. And after a lot of explaining by him and crying by me, they sent a rental car company representative to pick us up and bring us to get a temporary vehicle until everything was sorted out. So we had to go to where our cars had been brought to get pictures to submit for insurance reimbursement. 
When I saw my crumpled pop can looking car, my knees gave out beneath me. Looking at the remains of that car, I had no idea how I survived. And the agents who were with us told me the only reason I lived is because of the reinforced frame of Subaru cars. The combination of impact, flipping, and force would probably have killed me had I been driving Richard's sedan. Luckily, Richard spun his car but didn't flip it, so his leg was sore and bleeding a little from the dashboard collapse, but he was essentially okay. We did decide to go to the walk-in clinic together after all. The doctors were originally concerned that both of us might have fractures in our right tibias and that I might have a concussion. But miraculously, neither of us had any major injuries or fractures. I continued to bruise up pretty bad over the next week or two and was generally sore, but I was okay. The result of this combined double accident was that family needed to come first. Our commutes were ridiculous. Richard often traveled for 90 minutes to two hours each way to get to work, and my commute was unnecessarily long as well. We sold our home in a more rural area and moved closer to the city where we worked so we could be within 30 minutes of our jobs and be able to spend more time with our kids and each other. I also came to the rapid realization that the small company I was working for at the time was extremely unethical. The reaction after my accident was, well, when are you coming back to work after spending just one day at home? They also began pressuring me to fire several long-term employees, including one who was pregnant, and then hire new employees at a cheaper rate. I didn't appreciate their behavior towards me or my coworkers. I returned to that job for two weeks and then gave my notice, and just like that, we were moving. I found a new job I was excited about, and we were about to embark on a journey that would finally take me in the direction I was supposed to be going in.